CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara community through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2020 and 2021 to keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400, and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Welcome to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Sports Plus. And uh, word has gotten around a little bit, so let's just jump right into this topic, uh, Jonah. You did pick up an acquisition uh, since we've last had a podcast um, against your will. Well, I guess the acquisition would be you a welcome thing to to get, and I'm talking about the stent. Uh, but uh, a scary uh, health situation, Jonah, that uh, has knocked us off the air for a couple of weeks while you've uh, you're in recovery. Um, what do you want to say about where you've been and what you've been through? Well, yeah, I've acquired a new piece of wire mesh in the right ventricle of my heart. Um, Two, the, two weeks ago, Sunday, the President's Day weekend, I was getting ready to to go to some basketball games, Damon basketball, and I was going to swing out to the Buffalo Extreme ABA game and catch up with some folks in the gyms. And I was feeling some tightness in my chest and into my arm. It wasn't very painful, but it felt like something was going on. And from what I know, from what I've read, uh, that left arm, left chest heaviness uh, is a telltale sign of some sort of heart issue. I drove myself over to the urgent care and ended up in the ER and ended up uh, being told I had a minor heart attack and a completely blocked artery and needed to get a stent. And at Buffalo General and the doctors and the surgeons and the nurses were wonderful, tremendous care. And it was never really a painful or an experience that felt much like a heart attack, but the underlying causes and what they found and, and some of the warning signs that were there were rather serious and uh you know i'm now on the path to lifestyle changes and hopefully healthier cardiovascular system and you know hopefully avoiding an event like this happening again or not happening again for 30 40 50 years it's scary shit man glad, and glad you're okay and i know that you've uh you wanted me to let some people know and uh as i passed along that information the the care that was coming back the shock and of course, the first question anybody asks, how old is he? I mean, I got that in the hospital. I'll tell you a quick, funny story about that. Uh, I'll tell it first. You know, I was laying on the the hospital gurney, getting ready to get wheeled in for the, uh, the angiogram, which is a test they do to see what's going on. And then whatever procedure they, they deemed necessary after that. And the surgeon, Dr. Iyer was asking me, uh, asking me what I do for work and, and explain all that. And then he says, hey, so when are the Bills going to win the Super Bowl? And I said, I think it's going to happen in our lifetime. I, I'm of the belief, as Sean McDermott is, that it will happen uh, one of these years someday. 
I'm not negative thinking there's a curse that'll never happen for the Bills fans. But, you know, after they go, I would like for him with his bedside manner to say, well, for some of us. Well, that was a little bit of the joke that it might happen in my lifetime, but not his lifetime, because that was something I heard throughout the hospital from nurses, doctors and everybody. I mean, oh, my God, you're so young. My roommate in the hospital was an 89 year old gentleman who uh, had a pacemaker that had stopped and they had to revive his heart. And some of the things they overheard, he was in a you know very serious situation where maybe, you know, his heart is failing at his age. And there was not too many other people my age walking around the um the cardiovascular floor at, at Gates vascular cardiology department. Um, and I was hearing a lot about how I was way too young to be there. And, and, and also I look, people tell me I look younger than I am. So being 41 is too young for something like this to happen. But a lot of people look at me and think I'm 30 or someone in our, one of our colleagues I had mentioned this happened to, and they said, how old are you? And I said, 41. I said, I thought you were 26. And so, you know, I hear that a lot. And that was the joke with the doctor that, you know, Maybe the Bills will win the Super Bowl in my lifetime, but if he's 15, 20 years older, maybe the Bills won't win the Super Bowl in his lifetime. But then um, after the surgery and after at that point, they found out that maybe it was a little more serious than even the doctors thought at first, uh, you know, more of a blockage. They uh, they asked me and I wasn't knocked out. But, you know, after it was over, they kind of asked me again and said, you know, I'm going to ask you that question again. I want to know uh, when the Bills are going to win the Super Bowl now that we've saved your life and extended your lifespan. And I said, next year, baby, here we go. <laughs> I was in the uh, celebratory mood. And if he wanted to hear some, uh, you know, Pollyanna talk about the bills, I was ready to give it to him. Well, how scared were you as you learned all this? Because like you say, uh, it didn't feel, well, we don't know what a heart attack is going to feel like. Hopefully it never happens to you, but you don't really know what it, it would feel like. But you say it was minor. You went to urgent care first. You didn't go straight to the ER. So as and we're texting each other, you're texting me throughout the day. And I'm getting the impression that you're being kind of, uh, you know, you're going through these tests and you don't know until probably it's all done. You know, you're going to be OK before you get the the diagnosis that you have had the heart attack. I know you'd been in the hospital for a long time before you finally learned that. Um, did you have a chance to be scared or are you thinking this is all just, you know, I'm in a hospital now. I feel okay. Whatever's going to happen. I'm going to be, um, you know, it's, it was caught, whatever it, but, or did it get dicey for you? Well, I wasn't very scared um, when it first happened because it didn't feel that bad. I kind of, I wasn't sure if it was a heart thing. I thought maybe it was a muscle cramp or something going on in my chest and arm area that wasn't heart related. And I was hoping that was what the urgent care would tell me. That's kind of why I went there instead of the ER at first, hoping that maybe it was something less minor and all I'd have to pay is a small copay to find that out. And even at the urgent care, they weren't very forceful about going to the hospital. They said it would be a good idea, but they kind of left it in my hands to decide if if I thought it was necessary, they said, you know, to be cautious, you probably should go get some tests, but they didn't say you're definitely having a heart attack. You got to get in that ambulance right away. And once I got to the hospital and I was on the different hookups in the emergency room, I was rather confident that the hospital and the doctors there were going to take care of me and keep anything bad from happening in the moment. And it wasn't believed to be a heart attack at first from some of the tests that they do and enzymes in the blood, those build up over time. And the first test didn't really show that that was what was going on. But as hours went along, they figured that out. When 
the doctor at first mentioned the words heart attack. That was probably the scariest thing. My, you know, my heart rate, you can see it on the machines that, that you're on there, went way up at that point. That was pretty shocking to hear and also surprising because hours earlier, we had thought that maybe wasn't the case. And the scariest part of it is, and I'm still dealing with it, is that, um, you know, this is a, a bit of a chronic condition, uh, arthrosclerosis or, you know, hardening of the arteries and hereditary in that um, even though they've placed that stent and I'm kind of fixed up for now that something like that could happen again or heart problems could reoccur if I don't make the proper lifestyle changes and do the things that are necessary. And then thinking back to maybe the close call that it could have been, if you know, I passed out while I was driving to the urgent care or I was by myself at home and, and nobody was there to help me out. Um, it's more scary kind of thinking about what didn't happen, but the different scenarios that possibly could have happened. And, and there's a little bit for me, there was a little bit of a, well, did they, what, did they tell you Jonah, what would have happened had you ignored that chest pain or that arm pain that day, how uh, serious that would have been? Not necessarily. I mean, it was emphasized that I got in there early and that I made the right decision to, to seek medical care in the first few hours and that uh, it could have gotten worse, but I don't know if it was, uh, known or stated that I would have had a major heart attack if I didn't do anything about okay. it. I think I would have continued having what I was this what I was experiencing through the next few days, but it could have caused more damage to the heart. They, they did some tests that um, they say that there's no long-term damage in the heart muscle, and maybe if I waited longer and longer to go to the hospital, that could have happened, but that wasn't really spelled out to me. I still have more cardiology appointments coming, so maybe I'll learn more about that. Um, but for me, um, you know, there's been a little bit of survivor's guilt in the sense that I know some people uh, either younger than me or right around my age that have had fatal heart attacks uh, in recent years and and kind of knowing. And I know some mutual friends that I talk to that know those same people and kind of realizing that um, I did have, you know, a lucky, fortunate experience with my heart cardiac episode and that many other people my age or many other people of all ages aren't as fortunate. And, uh, you know, sometimes you feel a little bad about being the one that, that was lucky when some other people weren't. I can only, uh, guess uh, what that feels like, but like you say, the survivor's guilt, uh, I, I don't think you have anything to feel guilty about, but that's not what's knocking around inside of, uh, you know, what's knocking around inside of your head at, at one in the morning when you can't sleep here these last couple of weeks or whatever, uh, you know, trying to relax because you, you're unable to to get back to work right away. I'm sure that uh, those were some pretty confusing moments. And like you say, you're still having them. I don't, I don't yeah, know I if you eventually worst, get over that or not. I think it's mostly just when I'm talking to people who are mutual friends of friends of ours that, that had died and kind of knowing that maybe I'm re-traumatizing them a little bit. And, you know, all of us, you kind of, th I think everybody hears that and thinks about their own heart first. And then they maybe think about a family member or somebody that they know and kind of just recognizing that, you know, it could have been worse for me and it has been worse for other people and raising ghosts that, that some people might have about um, some other events and things like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating point, too. I guess I wasn't thinking of it in that regard exactly the way you were meaning it. But, yeah, you talk to other people and you obviously are breathing a sigh of relief and and borderline celebratory that you 
caught it and you had a good medical team and that everything looks good now. Yeah, I could I could definitely see that because everybody knows uh, someone, not just knows someone, has a loved one who's probably died of a of a heart attack or a, or a major heart issue. Um, any, any, uh, philosophical wisdom, uh, that you can impart, uh, that you didn't maybe think two weeks ago, uh, that, uh, uh that you find yeah. yourself contemplating now. I don't know if this is philosophical. I think it's maybe more pragmatic and practical, but I, I've had this conversation with a lot of friends of mine, um, around my age and things like that. And I, say to any of the listeners and anybody who can kind of get this message that I think the biggest mistake I made was I, my doctors had made some recommendations about diet and cholesterol medication when I was in my thirties and things like that, that I brushed off a little bit. And even with the medication I resisted, I didn't want to go on statin medicines because I'd read about some of the side effects and I thought uh, various vitamin supplements and things like that would work better. And I would say, you know, you got to, you got to be mindful of your health. You got to visit your doctor as often as, as you need to, or as often as your doctor wants you to, and to listen to what they tell you. And, and that, you know, the tests that they run and the medicines that they recommend, um, you're probably wise to listen to them and do as you're told, as far as the, the medical wisdom that's imparted upon you. And that maybe if I had listened to that and taken that more seriously five, 10 years ago, I would have had a better outcome here last weekend. I don't want to get into a political discussion because unfortunately healthcare is such a, has so many political um, threads to it. Um, but I'll ask you this. I mean, how long have you been working for channel four? A little over a year, a year okay. and six months, maybe. Okay. So a year and a half ago, you're a freelancer. Uh, I don't know what your insurance situation was. But it is a shame that so much of your health care and your decisions that you make on even going to see a doctor or can I go to a doctor? Can I afford to go to urgent care or check into the ER to get looked at uh, would be based on whether or not your employer offers you health insurance. So when you were a freelancer, would you have been more reluctant to go because no, you didn't I, have I insurance? Would've, I would have handled it the same way myself. Um, I was on when I was a freelancer because of the way some things worked out when I was underemployed at various points in times. And through the pandemic, I was able to get Medicaid and I was able to get that kind of grandfather then year after year, even when I was making a little bit more money. So that I think that insurance would have held up. And also I'm fortunate with my family and, you know, their insurance and their financial positions that even if, um, you know, I wasn't insured and we would have had to pay this out of pocket that we would have been able to do that. It might've been a big bill. And I still haven't gotten all the bills. I don't know how much this is going to cost me and all the different tests and EKGs that they were running on me. I'm sure that I incurred a lot of hospital costs. And I think I do have pretty good insurance. I don't think I'm going to be paying several, several thousand dollars, but I'm probably going to get some sticker shock from the bills that that arrive from just going to the hospital and just riding in an ambulance itself. Uh, they charge you a lot of money for. Um, but, and also another thing, and, and I think, you know, there's some people that aren't as fortunate. Some people live in different states and maybe the insurance laws aren't as, as good health insurance. And I think it's very unfortunate if somebody doesn't have health insurance and isn't able to uh, get the proper care they need because they're worried about how much it costs. And I'm a big proponent of uh, nationalized universal health care and allowing this to be the case for everybody 
and not just people like me, you know, immigrants and people that don't speak English as their first language and don't have the same abilities to call a doctor and go to the urgent care and communicate. I think we need systems that allow everybody to be healthy, even if they're not, you know, even if they don't have all of the skills to do it for themselves. And you mentioned politics, and it got me thinking that some people have asked me different questions, and, you know, you hear it with all different cases, you know, depending on what side of the aisle you're on here. Uh, you know, people want to know if it was COVID, and people want to know if you're vaccinated against COVID, and a lot of people will blame one or the other for a lot of health, health outcomes, and especially heart things. And for me, and it is, you know, one of the first things they ask you in the hospital is whether you've been vaccinated. And I, I was vaccinated early on. I did get the first round of the booster. I did not get this most recent booster, mainly just out of laziness. I wasn't opposed to it. But from the conversations that I had with nurses and doctors in the hospital, there's really zero concern that a vaccination caused anything wrong with my heart. And of the same token, you know, I didn't test positive for COVID. And the one time I had COVID years ago, it was mild. And I don't think this is any sort of long COVID situation, even though I think that is a risk. and maybe some of the people I know that that had fatal heart attacks at young ages, I, I wonder if it was a long COVID situation with them. But for me, it doesn't seem like on either side of that, that the coronavirus had anything to do with, with my heart episodes. Yeah. And well, like you said, uh, long before COVID was even in the lexicon, your doctors were trying to get you to take cholesterol medication. So uh, you, the warnings were there a while ago, or at least the flags. And so, uh, yeah. And I would say to that also, you. you know, a lot of us rightly so were very shaken up and moved emotionally by what happened to DeMar Hamlin last year. And that led to a lot more awareness and understanding of heart conditions and AEDs and things that you can do to, uh, help somebody or help yourself in those situations. But the likelihood that you're going to take that blunt force trauma to the chest at the exact rhythm of your heart and have commodioconitis, what he had, is very, very small. The likelihood that you could have uh, heart disease building up slowly inside of you without knowing because of cholesterol and diet and hereditary factors is much, much higher. So if you were touched or worried at all about you know, what you saw on TV with DeMar Hamlin, for yourself personally, um, you know, you're probably a lot more likely to have an experience like I had. And so don't be afraid to go to the doctor and, and find out what's going on inside your body and then take their recommendations about what they tell you to do about it. Yeah. My father had a double bypass, might've been a triple, but it was at least a double at 49. And some people just have that in their family. I also happen to have similar bloodlines that you do regarding, uh, you know, history of of heart disease in the family. I've, I'm 50, I'm going to be 52 here, uh, in a couple of months and, uh, I've already had multiple stress tests and I get the annual EKG and, you know, I've not, I've not had in the blood test, which I guess is better than even the stress test. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's something that if you can, you, you need to stay on it, but not everybody's as, as fortunate enough to have uh, the accessibility to, to that kind of treatment. So, uh, I know, uh, well, I'm speaking for myself here, Jonah, I'm glad you're okay. Of course, uh, love you and have for, uh, many years long before we were podcast buddies and long before, uh, we've got even closer over the years, but I'm glad you're okay. And everybody that I talked to, uh, was 
equally relieved uh, to hear that uh, looks like everything's going to be all right. So much so that you're even out at uh, D2 uh, bas- college basketball games again or whatever degenerate stuff you, you do with your spare time. Uh, you're yeah, back to work. You're back to work, right? Yeah, I missed a week and a half of work, but I was in the gym kind of watching games and, and went to a Sabres game kind of on my own time um, a little bit before that. So I missed one Sabres game. I missed about a week of local basketball games and didn't get the opportunity to write a few stories that I had planned or really wanted to do that last week. But, you know, I've been okay with content with that myself that, you know, there's more important things to take care of. And if a few stories slip through the cracks and also I reached out to some of the people I was writing about and they, they didn't seem to mind. They said, you know, take your time. That's okay. I got the implication that maybe they wouldn't even read the story in the first place and they didn't really mind, but. Or, or would be even worse. We didn't realize you weren't there. Uh, we thought, you know, had you not texted, I would have assumed that you were there. I, I didn't realize that you weren't. Well, and also, I, I didn't miss much on Twitter. I was, you know, awake the whole time in the hospital. I was able to use my phone and a bit bored. So if I saw something worth retweeting or something I wanted to put out there um, on the social media channels, uh, you know, you might not have noticed that much was different. Well, a lot of people love you, Jonah, myself included, and uh, glad you're okay. And and uh, And thanks for your willingness to talk about it here on the podcast too, because I think it's not only is it interesting to those who are wondering uh, about you, but also educational for, for their own personal reasons. Hopefully it, it urges somebody to be that much more proactive uh, with their, with their healthcare, whether it be from a preventative standpoint, or if you feel like something's going on, don't ignore it. Yeah. I haven't been too ashamed to talk about it. And I've been, you know, eager to tell people kind of the message I shared earlier about, you know, what I learned and what I think people should know and and keep in mind. It's also been a little bit fun. You know, I see somebody and they say, Hey, what did you do last week? And you're like, well, let me tell you, I had a heart attack. And then, you know, I'm afraid I might give somebody else a heart attack. Some of the reactions I've gotten from certain people when they do, when I say that, but you know, sometimes it's a little fun to scare people and, and see what they say. Well, you have an unusual story to tell, you know, why, why not, uh, capitalize on it? Um, you mentioned uh, sticker shock with your bills, uh, earlier. Um, I'm just taking an opportunity for a cheap segue as we get into, uh, the NFL scouting combine, which is where I was, uh, for the past week. And, uh, one of the conversations, uh, had there was with Brandon Bean regarding the NFL salary cap rising, not enough to solve all their problems, uh, but interesting in that, uh, the bills are helped out quite a bit. Uh, by the huge increase in the salary cap. Uh, they're still going to have to make some roster moves, uh, restructure some deals, get rid of some players, whatever. Um, but I know that you've been following along, and we're going to get to the Buffalo Sabres in a little bit too. Um, and also, as we make this transition, let me also uh, ask uh, anyone out there watching or listening to please uh, subscribe to the podcast, uh, give it a like, leave a comment, rate it, whatever it is uh, that your platform uh, allows you to do, please, uh, by all means, interact with us. We enjoy it. Um, But uh, as you've been uh, relaxing and whether it be out of boredom or your professional interest, what you've been uh, seeing uh, regarding, uh, let's start with the Buffalo Bills and we'll we'll, we'll stay there and and get to the Sabres later. Your your thoughts on uh, what you've learned 
uh, from, and then I'll, and we'll talk about what I, what I learned in Indianapolis. Well, I think the larger than expected salary camp bump really helps the bills. Every dollar counts or every million dollars counts and they still have work to do, but getting a few more million dollars to work with than maybe they thought um, is going to make a big difference. I mean, there's still moves the bills have to make restructures and maybe a cap casualty release or two. I don't think the bills are going to have too much trouble getting under the cap and being camp compliant and have to cut really any player that uh, is better than Naeem Hines or something like that. But I do think, you know, because of the moves the bills have done in the past and pushing some salary cap money forward and, and players that they signed Von Miller, particularly um, they're out of the market for big shopping and they're going to have to be bargain shoppers and, and not get a lot of big free agents when that comes up in a week from now. And we've said that the last couple off seasons and they found ways to still sign players, Leonard Floyd and things like that. But I really don't anticipate the bills doing very much of that. They'll sign players, but they don't have a lot of cap dollars to work with. And they're going to have to get players that sign cheaply or sign on deals where the money's pushed out a little bit in the future. And when you're doing that, you're getting the second and third wave of free agents. You're not getting the best players at the positions of need that you want. Yeah, I would not expect big baller bean type moves. You know, those moves that fans really get excited about, whether it be a Von Miller or trading up to get so-and-so in the draft or, you know, whatever, all these different things that have made Brandon Bean so popular among Bills fans. I think this is going to be a pretty dry uh, or maybe not dry is not the right word, but uh, clerical uh, offseason for the Bills uh, in that you're probably going to lose some popular players uh, based on the contracts. I know that a lot of fans would love to move on from Von Miller uh, because he was borderline irrelevant. Uh, and then plus the off-field issues, whether or not you agree that, uh, you know, innocent until proven guilty, um, it's still uh, for a player who generated almost no statistical um, or or even emotional uh, impact uh, on the Bills defense that there's uh, there comes a point where you're more trouble than you're worth. But with the contract, the way it's uh, structured, Von Miller's probably back, uh, whatever frustration level uh might exist for Stefan Diggs with the way his season ended, not only with the lack of production down the stretch, but with the, um, the miscues in the, in the uh, loss to the chiefs, uh, the dropped bomb on the perfectly thrown pass at the end of the game, the fumble uh, at the start of the game and the drop. And um, I, th- I, in talking with bills fans, I, I get a growing sentiment of um Time to move on from Stefan Diggs, but his contract doesn't allow that either, uh, really. I mean, I guess there are moves that can be made, but um, really where I see the most, you know, where it's the Bills have the most work to do. And I know that fans really are eager for wide receiver help in the draft, but the defense really looks like it's going to need a lot of help. Um, Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde both might be done. Micah Hyde's contract is up. Jordan Poyer has a year left, but the Bills might move on from him. They're aging. They miss time. They get banged up. They've maybe lost a half a step or a full step. Um, Still worthwhile players in general, but at the money that they command is going to be a a tough, 
decision for the Bills to make. What do they do with Tredavious White? Is he going to be able to come back and contribute uh, uh, coming off of his second season-ending injury? Um, the knee two years ago and now the Achilles, uh, he carries a big uh, cap hit. Um so what savings can they do with Tredavious White, whether they cut him or restructure his deal? Uh, and of course, he's going to want to have to want to restructure his deal that he he's not forced. They can't force him to do that. Um, the defensive line, uh, there, it, there are only three players, I think, three defensive linemen under contract. Is that right, two, Jonah? How many? Two. two. I think it's only two. Yeah. Um, and I can't even tell you who the second one is, Ed Oliver and somebody else. Oh, geez. Well, look, look, look it up while I ramble. Uh, but they obviously need defensive line help, and they've gone with some interchangeable parts uh, on the edge, uh, whether it be, obviously, Von Miller. We, we talked about him. Uh, Gregory Rousseau, uh, A.J. Epinesa, uh, Floyd, as you mentioned, uh, and then the, you know, the, uh, the depth guys like a Shaq Lawson. Um, so, yeah, they, they need the most help on defense. And as much as Bills fans might wince at the idea, uh, you might be looking at a defensive lineman uh, with the first-round draft pick, not a wide receiver. Um, obviously, cornerbacks and safeties uh, are, are going to be uh, in demand for the Bills, depending on what they do in free agency. But do you draft a safety in the first round? Is there one good enough? The, the It doesn't look like the safety class is – it may be uh, portends uh, to that um, to that type of thing. But with the wide receiver class being deep, the Bills' strategy might be defense first round, come back and get a an effective receiver uh, in the second to, to help out. But uh, at least the Bills have, have the components on offense taken care of uh, contractually. All the offensive linemen are back. Uh, that's an under, I think, discussed... Uh, uh, facet of this offseason is that the Bills really don't need to do anything with their offensive line and what a luxury that is. Of course, they have both tight ends uh, that, they, that they're going to use. Uh, the running back, the quarterback, I don't even need to mention Josh Allen being locked up. Uh, and then, you know, a Khalil Shakir and, and maybe it's uh, time for Justin Shorter uh, to step up. All the different wide receivers that are rising uh, to hopefully um, – uh, better complement Gabriel De uh, uh, Stefan Diggs and to overcome, a, I'm going to say, a likely the likely loss of Gabriel Davis because a team out there probably will pay him way more than the Bills are willing to. Anyways, that's just my overview based on things that I gleaned from what Sean McDermott uh, had to say at the podium and also Brandon Bean uh, while I was at the Combine. I don't know, but just, just some thoughts there. So the answer to the defensive line question is technically three, but number two is Eli Anku, and number three is Cameron Klein. I don't know if the Bills are really counting on him to be a big rotational piece on the inside, but he'll he'll go to camp and he'll probably be a player competing for a roster spot. But yeah, the Bills have a lot of players to resign at that position. I think the Bills um, did not draft a defensive lineman in last year's entire class. Uh, so that's also when you think, you know, if you're racking your brain, uh, Bills fans out there, well, who did they draft late and put on their practice squad? Nobody. Uh, there is no defensive lineman. Uh, you, you know, they they kind of went with what they had. And so it looks like it's probably time for them to circle back and and address that. 
Yeah. I mean, that's a big hole. I don't think the Bills have many holes on the roster, at least especially at starting positions. Um, but you kind of broke down the wide receiver situation. They do have a bit of a hole at that number two wide receiver. I mean, Khalil Shakur was excellent at the end of the season, but he seems to be a bit more of a slot receiver type, third receiver. Justin Shorter, I think a lot of people have some high hopes for him being the fifth round draft pick last year, but we haven't seen him on the field. Don't really know if if he is going to be that player or if he's ready to be that player in his second year in the league after being on injured reserve for most all or all of his rookie season. And while I don't anticipate the Bills moving on from Stephon Diggs in the near term, possibly there's a trade after June 1st when the contract gets a little bit easier to move, but I think Stephon Diggs is on this team for one more year. But the Bills do have to start thinking and preparing for the possibility of not having Stephon Diggs as the number one receiver anymore. And while Khalil Shakur was excellent, I don't think he's a Stephon Diggs replacement. And so if the Bills can find a solid number two receiver in the draft who eventually becomes the number one receiver, that's probably the biggest organizational need, except for maybe a safety to replace the two safeties that they're losing. But, uh, you know, the Bills have to think about what they need right now, but also into the future because this cap situation isn't going away. They're going to need their draft picks and their cheap free agent signings to play key roles for several years here down the line as Josh Allen's contract keeps getting more expensive and they keep restructuring Josh Allen's contract to put the cap dollars further and further into the future. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, I speaking with uh, uh, a bill source uh, who is the type of person that you would, who, who has his finger on the pulse of, of things. I mean, I'm being vague about it, but uh, there's a belief in the building that uh, Stefan Diggs still does have, something left to give that there is uh, still gas left in the tank. The thing being is that he has faded down the stretch each of the last two seasons. Now, is that because of weather related things? Um, does he, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, layer on too many, you know, possibilities or get into, you know, a, a too much of a speculation, but um, you, as you say, uh, if Stefan Diggs is no longer the number one receiver, there's a chance that he's no longer the number one receiver while still on the roster. In meaning, if he if his if he's dipping, uh, if he remains that type of player uh, that he was towards the end of the season for a long period of time, really, in which you know we were writing stories about where is Stefan Diggs. We we're constantly asking Joe Brady and. Sean McDermott and Josh Allen on a weekly basis, multiple times during the week. What's going on with Stefan Diggs? How do you get him more involved? And it just wasn't happening. Uh, I did the story in which I uh, talked to Devin McCourty, the former New England Patriots uh, uh, Pro Bowl. I, I said I wasn't going to mention Pro Bowls anymore as a as a delineate as a uh, as a, a qualifier for excellence, but. Uh, Devin McCourty is one, let's just say multiple Super Bowl champion uh, with the New England Patriots, now an NBC analyst and had been going over the tape, not only of Stefan Diggs when he played because he had the game plan for him, but for uh, the game uh, late in the season, uh, I interviewed Devin McCourty and his, his thesis was, or his hypothesis was, um, are, hip, are hypothesis and thesis interchangeable? I was just thinking the same thing, and I think yes, but I don't know if that's correct. Well, anyway, all right. Well, his his supposition 
was that the Bills were trying to prove to Stephon Diggs that they don't need him because maybe there's a, a, a fatigue factor with him in the organization or with from Josh Allen or the coaching staff. And uh, now, of course, Brandon Bean at the Combine said that they expect Stephon Diggs to be on the roster again in 2024. But again, what else are you going to say, especially if he's somebody that you're trying to trade? You don't want people to think that you're done with him because you're trying to maximize whatever you can get in return. That's But I, I wouldn't expect – but. That's not to, I'm not calling Brandon being a liar either. I, I'll take it at face value. I just think it's it always just remains a dicey situation. And or uh, no, that's not the word. Not that it's uh, it's always uh, it seems always seems fluid uh, with Stefan Diggs. Uh, and some of that much of that is his doing. A lot of people think, why do the media keep coming back? Well, it's the vagueness. It's the cryptic tweets. It's the the, the cheekiness. I mean, it's it, he kind of he at least brings some of it on himself. It's not like he's a total innocent in this, but anyways, uh, whatever his status is going to be, uh, I do think that the bills still need to bolster around him because he may be slipping. You hope he's not, you hope that whatever it is towards the end of the season that led to the, the lack of production and the, the miscues in key situations, uh, that he was he's able to resolve those or the bills are able to overcome that but um, if not uh, if that's what he is now uh, then they need to obviously look for quite a bit of help at receiver to uh, to compensate for Gabriel Davis and for a diminished uh, Stefan Diggs uh, if he doesn't bounce back I think the ideal situation is something like when the bills drafted Lee Evans and he can be a compliment to Stefan Diggs in year one and then good enough to be the number one receiver if because of age and contract or whatever the Bills decide they can't afford to keep Stefan Diggs beyond this coming season. You have his replacement learning under his wing for one year, probably making Stefan Diggs a better player if, if he's a fast receiver on the outside opening things up and then taking over that role in a year from now or two years from now, however that shakes out. Uh, I had an interesting uh, sit down with Sean McDermott at the combine that um, it, it was uh, we sat down for a long time. We had breakfast. Um, I got into town early uh, by accident uh, because I botched my travel arrangements. And with Sean McDermott on the competition committee, uh, we were able to uh, sit down uh, before the rest of the NFL and the media, or I should say most of it, uh, descended upon Indianapolis and had a nice discussion on the record. These are types of interviews he doesn't really do uh, too often. Um, and he opened up about his, uh, from a personal standpoint, how the last couple seasons have been, uh, his thoughts on why he is um, a bit aloof when it comes to uh, divulging information, sharing information. I know a lot of people believe that they are owed explanations uh, and he just doesn't like to discuss. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't feel that it is in the organization's best interest to, uh, to give a, 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 to give a rundown or a summation as to what happened on, for example, 13 seconds or uh, other major decisions I was hoping that maybe uh, that he would go there, but he didn't. Um, so anyway, it was it was enlightening discussion with a guy who really comes off sometimes as pretty tightly wound, and I'll use the word again, aloof, somewhat 
robotic at times. But let's also not forget that Sean McDermott is a guy who you see get really emotional. I mean, he is not a Bill Belichick. I mean, he is. There might be some uh, roboticism to his, um, to his delivery or his uh, his communication skills. But we've seen this man cry uh, at a, at a microphone several times. Uh, there's there's something in between in there that I think sometimes he doesn't get enough credit for, and that's what I was trying to show in the story is uh, that there is and he he was a bit vulnerable in the in the in the interview, um, but it made uh, national headlines, and I was a bit surprised. Um, they it was a segment on pardon the interruption when Sean McDermott told me it's a not it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when regarding the Bills winning the Super Bowl. To me, that's what a coach says. Uh, I heard uh, through the grapevine because I was in Indianapolis, but I guess on Sirius XM, uh, Charlie Weiss, uh, the former um, Notre Dame head coach and also offensive coordinator for Bill Belichick with the Patriots. He said that it sounded like a coach, a desperate coach on a short leash to which I roll my eyes because I think that Sean McDermott is locked in as the Bills head coach, whether you like it or not. Uh, Terry Pagula loves him. He wins. I don't think that this is a guy who's desperate at all. I think he was just ready to have a sit down conversation over breakfast, but um Anyway, Jonah, your, your thoughts on that being a story. I thought it was just kind of a slice of Sean McDermott's life and interview. I didn't expect it to be um, to have buzz behind it. I was I was a little surprised. I, I think it's the nature of how words look in print or written on a screen a little bit different than probably the way Sean McDermott delivered it and the way you interpreted the way you were quoting him and writing the story. I also um, think Sean McDermott may have even said this before. I mean, it it doesn't sound outlandish to me, you know, when or he may have said it in the season ending news conference or Brandon Bean, I mean, or something close to it. Right. I mean, it, I, I feel like he said this in different off seasons, too, since, yeah. since the Bills have become a Super Bowl caliber, one of the best teams in the AFC team. It's sort of been Josh Allen said it that, you know, it's not a matter of when, but a matter of, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when the Bills are going to be that team. I mean, I would say you know, maybe get there first before you declare that you're going to win it. But it also, I, I know, I don't think, I, I don't think it's desperation. I think it's more positive psychology and speaking into existence that if, if you want to win the Super Bowl and you do believe that you're good enough to win the Super Bowl, you don't come out and say, maybe we can win the Super Bowl. You, you kind of take that positive information that you will win the Super Bowl and hope that that uh, gets your motivation and your brainwaves on the right path. Um, and but I can also see how someone, especially someone outside of Buffalo and just a casual NFL fan or a neutral NFL fan, could look at it and think it's something like Joe Namath's Super Bowl guarantee right. that he's saying the Bills will absolutely definitely win the Super Bowl and kind of putting his. Do you his, do you remember when people made fun of Chan Gailey? Chan Gailey had a comment about I don't even know what he was in what what the question was, but he said I think we're going to win every game. Meaning, and so people wrote, Chan Gailey predicts 16 and 0 Bills season or whatever. You know, it's like, come on, let's not, let's not take it that far. It is, it's a, there's a confidence. You got to have an, a, an ego, an arrogance uh, as a coach. Uh, and I, anyways, I was just kind of surprised that that quote, because I thought there were some other things in the story that were maybe more interesting than that quote. It was just his way of telling fans, hey, look, I know. I know I haven't made you entirely happy, and I know that we're 
you know, we, we haven't progressed in the, in the tournament uh, each of the last three years, but you know, uh, so anyway, it, yeah. Well, and there is an outside perception. There was some of that coming into the year. And I think maybe more after this season that the bills have missed their window that because of the cap situation and not taking advantage of opportunities they had the last couple of years, that the bills are a team that are slightly declining and won't be as Super Bowl caliber in the next three years as they've been in the last three seasons. And I think maybe what Sean McDermott is saying is that he doesn't believe that, that he thinks this team is just as capable of winning this season and next season than it was last season and the year before, which I kind of agree with, but I, I believe that many people don't agree with that. And I think there's a reasonable argument that the bills might not be quite as good next season as they were last season. He's also leaning into his mentor who just won his third Super Bowl in five years, Andy Reid, and will probably be the betting favorites to win it again next year. Um, Andy Reid was that guy in Philadelphia, the guy who couldn't get it done. And of course, eventually he had to, he, he got fired by the Eagles and goes to Kansas city and, and now we're talking dynasty and first ballot hall of fame. So uh, Sean McDermott with his relationship to Andy Reid, he was feeling that a little bit too during the interview. And I think it might even been uh, referenced in my story. Um, you know, he was, he quote, he, he referenced Andy Reid quite a bit throughout the interview that, Hey, I get it, but Hey, take a look at Andy Reid. Take a look at, you know, these other guys. Uh, it's, it, you're doubted. You're doubted until you get it done. And he gets that and he understands the frustration, but he's not lost any confidence. He's got the, the consistency of four, four or three straight AFC East division titles Four, I think. Right. Um, winning 13 games. Yeah. Winning 11 to 13 games a year is, uh, you know, or whatever it was, what they learned pretty good. I mean, and again, not great. Not the great, not elite, but excellent. And as he mentioned, if the last two things to accomplish uh, in your organization are to win the conference and win a Super Bowl, uh, there are an awful lot of teams out there that would love to be in that position uh, and to be continually knocking at the door, which is exactly the type of organization that Brandon Bean and, and Sean McDermott wanted to build a perennial contender, not just somebody that's going to go for it one year, make the big splash, hopefully get there, uh, and then need to rebuild. Um, and of course, all the things that we were talking about earlier with all the roster moves, this is where Brandon Bean gets tested, uh, being able to keep the team a contender while making serious moves while get moving on from important players uh, while trying to fill significant holes uh, to make sure that Josh Allen has the best chance to win on uh, Sundays or Mondays. Yeah. And it also sets a bit of an expectation in the agenda that the bills are still all in to win the very next Super Bowl because there is, a way you can look at the Bills roster and cap sheet and think that they should maybe cut some high-priced players and take the salary cap hit now to reset the books and make the team more long-term, sustainably competitive in the future. Because Josh Allen's probably going to be here a long time with a different uh, supporting cast of players around him. And maybe you accelerate that by taking one step backwards this season to take two steps forward the following season. And because 
the Bills haven't made any of those moves yet. It really hasn't been too much leaked out that they're planning to make those moves and also the rhetoric coming from the team. It seems like they're doing whatever they can to to keep as many of these players together and, and go for it this year and not, you know, kind of push their chips forward. Uh, if that's the right metaphor, I think it's not, but uh, for a future season. Let's switch over to the Sabres, um, a team that is nowhere near as stable uh, as the Bills in terms of their organizational build, in terms of their culture, I don't think. Uh, not winners yet, although they have won four of their past five games uh, and have a great record since the new year, mostly because of Ukapeka Lukanen's uh, surging play. But they haven't scored more than three goals since they beat the L.A. Kings 7-0 on February 13th. So they are doing it with UPL. Uh, they're winning, not making up much ground. Are they going to be buyers or sellers? Uh, for the record, the NHL trade deadline is one week from today. That is on Friday, March 8th. And... Uh, I don't know. Maybe it comes down to these next couple of games that were, uh, you know, back-to-back home games against Vegas Saturday night, Winnipeg on Sunday night, in which general manager Kevin Adams and uh, owner Terry Pagula uh, put their heads together and decide: Are we going to be buyers? Or are we going to be sellers? Your your take on the team and where it is right now, Jonah, um, as it treads water despite winning? Yeah. Well, it's a in what many of us felt like was a playoff or a bust season, they're probably not going to make the playoffs and the season's not going bust. It's kind of wallowing in that middle and the Sabres are playing a lot better of late and look like they're going to have a much stronger finish of the season than how the season started and a lot of encouraging signs with the goaltending from Lukanen and how some young players are developing, Owen Power coming back and looking pretty good of late. They finally got their three-game win streak. Right, yeah, and and playing consistently well, winning. As sad close as games. that sounds, you know, even the game they lost to Florida, they were pretty competitive in that game. And if not for you know the penalty that Zach Benson took, and then the penalty that Don Granado took to make it a five on three, uh, might have had a better result in that game. And Florida's you know, tied for first place in the conference right now. That's one of the best teams in the league. Um, there, there's a lot of good signs for the future, but I think Sabres fans are getting frustrated with that year after year. And this was supposed to be a year about the present more so than building toward the future. But in as far as the buyer or seller situation, yeah, the Sabres are not out of it yet, but they're 10 points back from a playoff spot, and there's a lot of teams that they have to jump to get to that playoff spot. The various, you know, money puck, if you want to use that as one projection site, has them about a 2.7% chance of making the playoffs. So for all intents and purposes, the Sabres aren't going to make the playoffs, but they can – make a run here to get close and play some meaningful games and be in playoff contention to where you don't think that they should be giving good players away and giving up on the season and bringing players up from Rochester and just looking ahead to the future. It's too early. It's too, they're not out of it yet mathematically to make that calculation, but also the playoffs are not that likelihood that they should be mortgaging the future and trading away I think there should be a move, but they shouldn't really be trading anyway. Anyway, the prize prospects or really high draft picks, their first round pick that might be in the top 10 next year for a short term solution because it's just not going to work. If they traded, you know, a draft pick or a player for a rental, 
they're just not going to win enough games for that to play out. So the Sabres are buyers and sellers at the same time. I think that whether it's Eric Johnson, probably not Kyle Poso, but in theory it could be Kyle Poso. some other pending free agents that they don't think they're going to sign, Casey Middlestad being the biggest name of that bunch. The Sabres might trade away a player that they don't think is going to be on the team next year to get an asset back, but also might have to then trade for a player to replace that player so it doesn't look like they've given up. And I do think, I think I've, I thought this a year ago, and I think this has been the case with the Sabres for a long time, that they do need to make some moves for the perception of it, to show the fans that they are trying to make the playoffs, even if they aren't going to get all the way there. I think if they're total sellers at the deadline and give up on the season, that that's going to have a really negative impact on the fans and the fan base and the vibes around the team and even within the locker room. So while they might trade some players away, I think they need to trade for uh, reinforcements to fill in for those players that they get rid of. A tradition unlike any other, uh, yesterday at the Athletics, Scott Wheeler put out his uh, annual prospect pool rankings and had the Sabres with the best prospects uh, in the entire NHL. And I know that uh, they were number six last year. I said it's a, a tradition unlike any other, but it seems like the Sabres get a top ranking in this type of um uh, evaluation somewhere by some major uh, outlet, whether it be the hockey news or the athletic, you know, fill in the blank. And it just keeps happening year after year. So when you talk about being sellers at the deadline, they should uh, have plenty of material uh, at their disposal. Uh, it's just a matter of whether or not you are willing to part with some of these players. Um, and there's great risk involved. You don't want to give up on a, a too good of a player, uh, because it'll be embarrassing to you when that player goes off somewhere else and does a great job, um, or you just fall in love with your guys that you've been cultivating. It's hard to part ways, but uh, these are the assets that the Sabres have, and unfortunately, it hasn't done them much good. Uh, having the year-in, year-out, top-end prospect pool in the NHL going back forever, which is, I guess, what you're supposed to have when you're constantly drafting uh, at the top of the order, including number ones, uh, you're supposed to look this way, but you're also not supposed to be entering your 13th straight year of no playoffs. Um, just to give uh, an update regarding the wild card race, the Sabres are seventh uh, and uh, they're at 60 points. So they are 10 behind the Tampa Bay Lightning. They picked up only one point because uh, their victory was in overtime. So the Lightning got a point out of that last night. Uh, the Red Wings have the top wild card spot at 72 points. Uh, so there are one, two, three, four teams in between. It's a log jam. And uh, that uh, in you, usually the it's not how many points you need to make up. It's how many teams you need to leapfrog along the way. And the Sabres uh, just do not look great uh, in terms of their uh, their uh, the likelihood. Uh, that they'll be able to pull this off. Um, and they have a tough stretch of the schedule coming up. They have a back-to-back, -back, both home games, but Vegas and Winnipeg, both really good teams in the Western Conference, coming in this weekend on back-to-back -back nights. And then their next set of games on the road against Toronto and then Nashville on back-to-back -back nights. So I think as well as the Sabres play, are playing and could continue to play well, 
I don't know if it's realistic to think that they're going to win. Then then UPL won't be able to play all those games. Right. And Devin Levi's down in Rochester. I don't believe that he'll be called up to back up in either of those games. So Eric Comrie, who uh, played a bit better in his most recent start, but the Sabres are one and seven in the games that he started. And he has close to a four goals against average. So that really good goaltending that they've gotten, it's kind of propelled their hot streak won't be there every night in these next four games. And I don't know. I don't know if the Sabres are in a position where these next four games really influence how they, how Jack Kevin Adams behaves at the trade deadline, but you could make the argument, you know, if they win a lot, they're more in the wild card race. And if they lose more than they win in these next four games, maybe it does help make some trade deadline decisions easier than they seem to be right now. We talked a few podcasts ago and I went on a little bit of a rant about the lack of foresight within the Sabres organization. Um, in particular with uh, its, its roster attention over the off season, knowing that they were going to need some help. They just ran it back. And um, um, of course, d- d- despite having some injuries heading into the year and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and I, I know have a response to that. Oh, were you going somewhere with that? Yeah. I was just going to say, and I know goaltending is tricky and I know that, Better coaches than Don Granado uh, have missed uh, when it comes to goalies um, and general managers better than than Kevin Adams. But at some point, how do you not understand or see that UPL has this in him or have getting to gotten to a point where you're at least testing him to see if he has this in him uh, and making sure that Devin Levi not only is your opening day starter, but is going to be the workhorse out of the gate while UPL looked like the odd man out. Not only was he number two, but looked like the odd man out. I, I interviewed Mika Noren for this. Uh, you know, I, I tracked him down in Saudi Arabia. Uh, you may have seen that story in the athletic uh, in which he was talking about, you got to get UPL out of there. You're, he's being wasted uh, because that was, Mika Nornan's career story too, because he was behind Marty Baran and Ryan Miller. And for a brief period of time, uh, Dominic Hasek when he first got uh, drafted by the Sabres, but and now UPL is one of the best goaltenders in the NHL in the span of a couple of months. How do the Sabres not see that? And I know their answers that I know for me, haven't covered it. I know that goaltending sometimes is an elusive concept, but these people get paid to make these decisions and to make these evaluations. They have scouts, they have a goaltending coach, they have all kinds of in they have all kinds of information. And they still looked at Devin Levi fresh out of college as the clear cut guy at the start of the season. And UPL and Comrie were flip a coin, I guess. Well, they definitely misread the goaltending situation coming out of training camp. Uh, Devin Levi should have started in Rochester for his development. It also would have allowed them not to keep three goalies and have a more balanced roster and some of the trickle-down effects that happened from carrying three goalies for the first half of the season. And also, you know, UPL wasn't the number two goalie coming out of camp. He was the number three. They Eric Comrie had a really good training camp, and he was the backup, and he got whatever was, you know, the first start after Devin Levi started, you know, I think the first four or five games of the season. And 
But yeah, I guess I was being too kind when I said coin flip. You're right. Comrie was the number two. Right. And, and but that wasn't the Sabres. The Sabres weren't the only ones that believed that. I mean, I think most of the media kind of recognized that Comrie maybe earned the backup job in training camp. And, you know, Lukanen was not dressing for games last year. He was the fourth goalie at the end of last season when they still had Craig Anderson and they brought Devin Levi in. And it had seemed like maybe the Sabres had given up on him a year ago. But when you talk to Don Granato and Kevin Adams through the offseason, and even going back a year ago in past seasons, They've always been very complimentary and saying that they believed in uh, in as a prospect and a goaltender. And even when it didn't look that way and he wasn't getting very good results and he was struggling with his confidence at various times and struggling with injuries, they still believed that he was going to develop into a solid NHL goaltender, I think a lot more so than many fans thought at various points in that. And, you know, Lukanen also struggled at times playing in Rochester. He didn't always have outstanding numbers for all of his time playing in the minor league level when he was battling injuries and things like that. And what I think the Sabres saw in Lukanen was potential and believed that he could be an NHL goaltender, but weren't really sure about his confidence and his mentality and if he believed in himself and if he was ready to get to that point uh, this season. I think maybe he surprised them and maybe even surprised himself a little bit by stepping into the net and playing so well and not having, you know, any more growing pains. Although he had a little bit with an illness earlier this season, but since January 1st, he's been one of the very best goaltenders in the NHL. And night after night, he hasn't had really good starts and then bad starts. He's been consistent. He's been good and very confident. And goaltending is a weird position. That can come and go, and maybe he's not that goaltender going forward. And he's a restricted free agent now, and the Sabres are probably going to have to pay him more money to bring him back than uh, it looked to be the case coming into the season. But overall, it's I think it's an encouraging situation to see him playing this well. And Devin Levi, you know, didn't play as well as, as he looked like he could have as he finished last season, and some people hoped he would as a rookie goaltender. But I think he showed enough to still have hope that he can be a solid backup next year and maybe develop into a very good NHL goaltender in time. And having those two as the goaltending tandem for next season is probably the most encouraging goaltending situation the Sabres have had in a long time. And it reminds me a bit of what Boston had the last few years when Linus Hallmark left Buffalo to sign with Boston and he had a Vezina trophy season and he was an excellent goalie. And I think there's a lot of parallels between Allmark and Lucan in, and especially if the Sabres give up on him and don't bring him back, it seems like a lot of the same of what you saw with Allmark when he was in Buffalo. But Boston had Jeremy Swayman, a young, you know, highly touted goaltender who kind of got blocked by Allmark coming in. But now Swayman's playing very well, and they've had a good goaltending situation for the past few years that's still going to be good going forward. And I think you could see a similar situation here with the Sabres having UPL and Levi as their goaltenders next year. Jonah, uh, before we go, uh, I know that you're still paying attention to things and you've even, like I said, even been out to events as you're uh, getting out and about uh, since your procedure. Uh, your thoughts uh, going around the amateur circuit? Well, this time of year, I'm in the high school gyms a lot, uh, you know, cover some college games and um, keep an eye on college. And March Madness is right around the corner, but it's Buff State week in boys and girls basketball. Tonight, there's... Uh, sectional finals of 
one girls game, two boys game, and then tomorrow there's a whole day of boys sectional finals at Buff State, and Sunday's a whole day of girls sectional finals that I'll be covering some of those, and then getting over to the Sabres games at night, some long days. Shouldn't and, you be taking it easy? Yeah, I am taking it a bit easy. I'm doing a few less basketball games than maybe I would if I was uh, not recovering from a heart attack. But, uh, you know, I, I am doing a bit of a double shift. I got a bit of a break in between, and uh, my colleagues have been very good about helping out and picking up some of these games and allowing me to get over to the Sabres game and not have to be covering basketball. Because that's what I did last year. I was at Buff State all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and it was fun. But that's a bit of a grind, and you end up writing a lot of stories and doing a lot of interviews and boxing out Tom Prince and West New York Athletics for the interviews and the post games, day after day after day. It's a little tiring, um, but I like being there. I like being around the amateur scene. I was over at the Manhattan Cup Championship game at Canisius the other night. That was interesting. You know, sold out gym at Canisius, which I haven't seen in a long time. Although I missed Canisius Niagara there this year, they probably got a good crowd for that, and a more competitive girls game than we were expecting. And, and that was a good atmosphere. And and I like seeing the different people. You see the college coaches at the high school games and, you know, you see some of the high school coaches at the college games and there's a lot of interweaving of the local amateur basketball and all these basketball events kind of bring all the hoops junkies out. And so this is a fun week for me. It's a fun weekend to, to be around at Buff State. And I'm looking forward to getting over there tonight and spending some more time there this weekend. Well, Jonah, maybe I'll see you out at the Sabres uh, tomorrow and or Sunday. Um, we might see Jack Eichel there tomorrow. He might be returning from the injured list and making his season return. He might not, but it's definitely possible, I think. He had a regular jersey on, I think, yesterday. I saw um, a report that he's out of the non-contact jersey, so that's a, that's a step in the right direction for him, or that's a sign, I guess. Do we think? What do we think about that? Does that matter like it did a year ago matter it's not the first time he's back so it certainly doesn't matter like it did his first time back but that was a huge event when jack eichel played here last year and had a hat trick and, and it, what's the case here going into this game if he does play i don't know i think sabers fans uh, should be a bit sheepish yes they've won five of their last uh, four of their last five excuse me but they're not going anywhere i mean is there anything to brag about regarding jack eichel other than you just want to see him not do well uh, because that means you've won the trade a little bit more. I don't know uh, if the Sabres were better, if they were on the cusp of the playoffs, if they needed this win to to clinch it. Or I think it just seems, I don't know. I think if I'm a Sabres fan right now, I'm not crowing about too much. I think someday we get to the point where Jack Eichel gets cheered in this building, but I don't know if tomorrow is that day. Probably not. Probably not. Jonah? Glad you're upright. Uh, glad to see you doing well. And um, thank you for doing this. Thank you for for soldiering. And uh, good luck on the on the circuit on the on the prep circuit here this weekend. Don't drink too much coffee. Are you allowed no to? Have, what's uh, well? I'm allowed, but what's um, caffeine? Yeah. What what what's the caffeine rule? A, um, keep it to a minimum, especially early on. There's you know, some recovery and then not ingesting stimulants is a big part of that. Um, and so I'm not drinking coffee right now. I'll probably get back into doing a little bit in the morning at some point. But also, you know, I would, as I think you do too, I could probably drink 
six cups of coffee during a Sabres game at night. And it didn't really affect my sleep, but it probably affected my heartbeat and things like that. So I'm yeah. trying to break those habits. And for 30 days or so now, I'm trying to not drink any coffee and lower my tolerance to caffeine and also, you know, give my heart, give my blood pressure, give my system a rest from those effects. What about alcohol? I think I'm doing the same thing with alcohol. The recommendations were to drink moderately, but I think I'm going to wait a few weeks. There's some healing involved. So anything I can do to kind of ease uh, the strain on my heart, strain on my cardiovascular system in the first few weeks is positive. And, a little bit uh, of alcohol is good for your heart, isn't it? I have read that, yes. I, I think the the number is about one, maybe one and a half drinks. If you get to two or more, then the negative effects of alcohol take over. And I think a lot of that has to do with other things that are in beer and wine. It's not the alcohol itself. Alcohol itself is poison, but there are some health properties from beer. I might even, I, I haven't been a type to do this very much in my life, but if I find myself at a bar anytime soon, I might uh, dabble in the non-alcoholic beers. Um, I'm getting a lot of Instagram messages about some different non-alcoholic beverages. I don't even know what they put in these things. If anybody has any experience with them and, and how they work and how safe they are, I'm curious about what that's like. But uh, someday I'll drink beer again. Someday I'll drink coffee again, but probably less than I had before, especially with the coffee. I might have to stop. Maybe a glass of wine. Beer. Maybe a glass of wine. I know probably not at like Elmo's though. The Elmo's wings is something I'm going to have to no, uh, talk about really wine. Scale back on wine. Yeah, I don't trust the wine at Elmo's either. No. Um, maybe the Angie drinks, the really uh, watered down mixed drinks, is what I have to switch to. And also something that I do enjoy, and I know you enjoy uh, dash of salt in the beer. I don't know if I'll be doing that again when I get back to uh, hanging out at Elmo's, but maybe I will. I, I got to. I got to ask the cardiologist what they think about added salt in beer. I don't, it's probably not the salt in beer. It's just the salt period. It has probably has nothing to do with the fact that it's mixed. I don't, the properties don't change in the beer. Yeah, probably. It's probably just whether or not salt is okay. I have great blood pressure, so I'm not worried about the salt. I think my blood pressure is good too. And it is good and it has been good, but while you're having a heart attack, believe it or not, your blood pressure goes up. So, I had high blood pressure for that weekend. Believe it or not. Really? When you're having a heart attack? Uh, all right. I, 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 next, you're going to tell me that your brain, wave, your brain waves change also while while uh, facing imminent death. Well, that was a conversation I had with one of the nurses. Because I've always, every time I go to the doctor, they take the blood pressure and they say, oh, your blood pressure is great. So they're checking my blood pressure over and over and over again. And especially the first night, every hour. So I couldn't sleep. It's just squeezing the shit out of my arm. And at one point, I'm asking, like, the blood pressure is good, right? And they're like, no, it's very high. You're having a heart attack, and it was before the surgery. Like, your blood pressure is high. But it's since, to a seem, got back into the normal range after the uh, procedure and the recovery. And blood pressure medicine that they put me on, so that's probably part of it, too. All right, Jonah. Well, take it easy. Don't uh, don't get too crazy at the at the high school games. Go with a straight AP lead. Don't don't get too creative. Don't don't strain yourself. That's a little bit of my strategy. Where you know these aren't going to maybe be my best stories that I write this week, and I hope the readers can uh, understand that. I don't know if this was my best podcast either, but 
will be better. I think it was maybe our best ever. Well, I appreciate that. It, it was, was fun. It was fun to get back to doing this after a week off. Wait, you just scratched your nose. Were you talking about doing coke? No, I just had an itch on my nose. Oh, I thought you said <laughs> but, you're going to get back to doing this. Well, you're get back to I doing this that. after a week off. That was unfortunate timing. <laughs> Thanks to everybody out there for listening to Tim Graham and friends with the ultimate F, Jonah Bronstein back. Uh, and uh, thanks also to CTBK, CPAs, and business consultants. The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. We'll